Hi, I'm Nick Marks. I founded the Centre for Wellbeing at the London-based think tank, the New Economics Foundation. Uh, and I also have my own business called Happiness Works. Your current area of work is around well-being at work. And what have you learned from that and from other your previous work that could inform how we can measure well-being at a community scale? The first thing to say about measuring happiness and well-being is that we can create measures of them, but you're never going to precisely measure them. But you're asking people for their, uh, exp- you know, to, to assess their experience of life, really, when you're into the realm of well-being. You know, how, what's the quality of their experience of life? So we use structured questionnaires to do that. And uh, there are lots of different methodologies, precise methodologies. But basically, you're, you know, you're asking people their feelings, either on a daily basis or over the last month. And you're asking them to assess, you know, the quality of their life. And uh, you use those to create measures of happiness and well-being. There are some standard scales that people use. Um, and uh, we also create them, especially for the workplace. And so what, what, what does well-being look like at a community, at, at a community scale? What, what would a happier, more resilient community look like? And, and how might we be able to measure that? So at a community level, probably the best measure is something called the Warwick Edinburgh Wellbeing Scale. And uh, use it really to ask people both their feelings and also sort of how functional they are, whether they're able to make decisions, whether their relationships are strong and things like that. And what would it look like? Well, the, the you know, the currency of, of, of well-being really is, is time and relationships. And so a community with high levels of well-being and happiness is going to be one where there are strong relationships, where people... Um, get along well, accept each other's differences, are able to be themselves, and they have, uh, you know, time to to nourish those relationships both ways, really, which is, you know, you have to give as well as receive in relationships. And that's really, the, you know, the, the heart of well-being and happiness is relationships. I mean, there obviously are other things, you know, uh, particularly personal things about, you know, how much we're learning, um, how much we're... Um, able to spend time in nature um, and how active we are but but the core of it really is relationships for groups who are doing transition and who want to be able to in some way monitor and evaluate the work that they're doing what would be the useful places to start I mean obviously like if you're a university department and you have a big uh, research budget you can do much more extensive research and if you're a, if you're a community initiative you don't want to spend all the time you would other spend otherwise spend actually doing things uh just measuring stuff uh, yeah what would seem to you to be a kind of a reasonable place to start in terms of an, and a doable way of measuring your impact as i said really i think the warwick edinburgh well-being scale which there's a short version i think it's eight or nine questions and there's a longer one it's about 14 is is free to use you can download the questionnaire and you just sort of tot up the score and you can use that. Um, and really you want to be tracking the same people through time. Um, and you can, you can see whether they get happier through, through, through the projects. Um, there, unfortunately, there aren't really very strong online tools. I'd like to build them one day. Um, but we're, we're building online tools for businesses at the moment. Uh, but uh, it would be nice to be able to give something free away to communities, which is an ambition. But right now we, we don't have that. Um, the other thing to frame it with is some work we did at New Economics Foundation called the Five Ways to Wellbeing, which are something we did for the UK Government Office of Science, their foresight project, which was basically 
trying to identify positive actions people could take to promote well-being. And the five ways are like a piece of social marketing in a way. They're an invitation into a well-being space. And they are, the first one is connect, because social relationships are the strongest part, really, of, of happiness and well-being. The second one is be active. Third is to take notice, which is noticing what's going on around and noticing within us. The fourth is keep learning and learning through the life course is really great. And then the fifth is give and volunteering, generosity, uh, altruism, all really good for our own well-being as well as other people's. And those those five things, I think, are just enough unpacking of the idea about well-being and happiness to not over-confuse, but to sort of open up a space. And if people are doing projects, they might like to think, you know, are they ticking the boxes of connect, be active, take notice, keep learning and give? And you know, maybe they've got something focused a bit more on activity or one on mindfulness and taking notice or one on learning or one on volunteering or one on building relationships. And it can actually help them bring the energy of the others into those projects. So that's a useful tool, but it's not really a measurement thing, but it's, it can guide. And a lot of a lot of local authorities, local projects use the five ways. as just a way to sort of inform their well-being work. Quite early on in, in the life of this government, they announced they were going to be taking well-being and happiness or use, using indicators around well-being and happiness um is there a case is, is there any way within the current austerity agenda where you could have an austerity agenda that actually increases happiness how do those how, how does the push to save money on such a on such a urgent profound scale run alongside the need to build happiness are are the two inherently mutually incompatible or could you have a a happy version of austerity (laughs) it's sort of unfortunate timing really isn't it that that that's what the coalition government you know was was doing as they started to introduce well-being and so it does feel like oh we're going to fob people off with the you know, uh, we're going to have austerity, but they can be happy. <laughs> Sounds rather, um, rather a disastrous combination. And um, I mean, what is for sure is that is that once you've got past uh, uh, sort of financial insecurity, which uh, which is probably more related to level of in- indebtedness than income. I mean, if you've got high levels of debt, that's that's really troublesome for well-being. And obviously, low income does not help at all. But but uh, but but really, the things that are strong for well-being are not. You have to sort of have enough money to enter into the space that you can participate in society. And there are lots of people that are excluded, and um, so 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 that is very very problematic. But if you can get into the space of thinking about those five ways, then actually money doesn't become exceptionally important, as in more income doesn't. There definitely is a way and there definitely are people who are living on you know, not exceptionally high incomes and who are happier than some other people who are much higher incomes. But as a general rule, of course, you know, having income protects you from particularly bad things. You know, it's a bit of a difficult nuance to strike there without sounding very paternalistic and very cut off from the difficulty of some people's lives. So, so just, just to go back to the question as well, that is, is it possible to have... An economy which is which is contracting and cutting back on public spending, and one that is growing in happiness at the same time. Theoretically, I mean, I mean, it's really difficult to know because, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'll give you an example. For example, Iceland, which has gone through, you know, you know, a much tougher transition than we have, 
that actually Icelandic people got happier during that. And I think that was a lot to do with the fact that they were living in a bit of a stressed out economy. Uh, and uh, people, uh, uh, everybody, I mean, I think they got, had 15% unemployment, you know, almost immediately. And because everybody was in the same boat together, there was a sort of community spirit in a sense around unemployment. The real problem was if you got made unemployed and you had high levels of debt, then you were really suffering. If you didn't have high levels of debt, then actually people got slightly happier, probably because they were spending more time with loved ones and more in relationship. How long that would last? It's difficult to know. The economy's obviously picked up again. But um, but there, there definitely was evidence that, that people got poorer and happier in Iceland over the last four years. Do you find that the concepts of happiness and well-being cut across the political uh, spectrum? Or do, would they, are they something that appeals as much to the left as to the right? The, the biggest take-up has been in the centre, but there are interesting ideas from the right and the left that... Uh, meet the happiness agenda. So, um, you know, from the right, I mean, what's classically called the right anyway, you know, you know, family, uh, autonomy would be, uh, would be things which are really important for, for happiness and well-being. From the left, uh, fairness, uh, uh, justice, respect, tolerance, all are. So in some ways, it's not a left-right agenda. Um, and I think in some ways, the way that, we at New Economics Foundation and, and, at, and at Happiness Works think about happiness and well-being is a, is a mix between um, individuals and the, the, the environment they find them in, the context they find them in. And you know, the, the right has placed more emphasis on individuals and the left has spent more emphasis on the conditions. And so how they come together is sort of a new way of thinking about uh, a synthesis between those two things. I mean, the point really is, is that some people do thrive in difficult circumstances and people do sink in benign circumstances. So there's two things going on. But it's also clearly true that more people thrive in good circumstances and more people sink in bad circumstances. So, you know, you can decide where you put your emphasis. But uh, but uh, there, are, there are things that can appeal from both sides. Our theme this month is around the impact of of transition what's your sense from from where you've sat over the last few years of of, of the impact that, that that transition has had you know i see transition you know popping up with interesting groups saying things and and uh uh you know i've been to a couple of transition meetings and talked to people but i haven't been deeply involved in the transition network i so i mean the but what I what I've seen when I've been in Totnes or once when I was in one of the North London groups is, you know, is a very vibrant community where a lot of people are are passionate about it. Um, not always in the mainstream. So I would think that the challenge must be must be uh, Totnes less so. I mean, Totnes is fairly mainstream, but in lots of places it's not very mainstream. So it's how do they get more involved with 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 the mainstream? I'm sure is the challenge, but that's the challenge that we all face in this agenda of wanting to take climate change seriously to, uh, and to take, you know, um, social challenges seriously too, is, is how do we take the mainstream? So you're well aware of that challenge. Uh, in the Happy Planet Index, Costa Rica had the world's highest score. What have they got that we haven't? First of all, Latin American countries generally do pretty, pretty well on happiness and well-being. Uh, they have a similar level of life expectancy and a similar level of GDP per capita as the former 
Eastern European, so Central Eastern European transition countries. Um, but they have much, much higher levels of happiness. And that's really to do with their, well, one, their, their attitude, their sort of joie de vivre, which, uh, or I should say pro vida, say in Spanish, uh, rather than uh, uh, um, a more um, Eastern sort of uh, slightly more down-tempo sort of thing. But most importantly is they have, you know, it's very strong communities, very, very strong uh, social connections, social participation, which simply isn't present in Central Eastern Europe. So they've got these very, very strong relationships. So that's one really, really important thing. Costa Rica specifically has done some very interesting things. So um, it abolished the army in 1947 and has invested that money in social uh, projects. Uh, so education, health. Uh, are really, really good. And, and that's shown actually in their life expectancy is higher than the USA. And their literacy rates are spectacularly higher than the USA. So they've actually got really, really good social outcomes there and health outcomes. They also have a sort of um, geographical uh, strategic advantage in that they have uh, hydro. So from a carbon perspective, they can uh, be much more... Um, renewable than many other places i mean iceland is the same with having geothermal you know there are places that do have and, and where i um live part of the time norway similarly norway has um has hydro so their actual use of energy themselves is more sustainable though as i call them they are actually fossil fuel pimps because they basically live off the earnings of fossil fuels in norway but um but you know so so costa rica has does have a strategic advantage in that when it all adds up really that if you think of the Happy Planet Index really is saying what's the environmental efficiency of delivering uh, well-being is they end up being, you know, delivering higher life expectancy, more happiness on a quarter of the carbon footprint of the USA. You know, that's interesting. So Kevin Anderson uh, is uh, often heard to, to say that actually uh, coming, staying below two degrees and economic growth are incompatible. But at the same time, the push, the push is always for more and more and more growth. Is there any way you think that we'll ever choose as a society, as a culture, to leave a growth-based economy behind? And if so, what role might a narrative face focused around happiness play in that? Well, in a sense, that's been the thrust of my work over the last 15 years, which is that you know, I started working on alternative measures to GDP in 1992, 93 with me and... Uh, well, he's now Professor Tim Jackson at Surrey University who wrote Prosperity Without Growth. We worked on a, an early UK version of something called the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare. And basically, we were trying to add up the costs of climate change and the costs of other things and take them off GDP. Um, and I, I think that well-being has, for me, that is the point of well-being, is to change the discourse, which is to say that economic indicators of progress really are just saying more is always better. And actually, I think we need to think about the quality of what the experience we have. And that's why I've got interested in well-being. It was my driver. You know, my driver was a sustainability driver to get into happiness and well-being in the very first place. It's, you know, humans are the problem in the system. And so how do we think about that? So it becomes an intractable problem if you really want to think about, if you think that GDP growth is a measure of the, of the well-being of society, because, you know, we all know that, if you grow GDP, you, you grow the throughput of uh, materials and resources through the economy, which is going to inevitably create, you know, um, 
both um, sink and source problems of, you know, of, uh, of you know, where does the carbon go and everything else, and where do you get it from? So, so that that throughput is hugely, hugely problematic. And I think the only escape out of it is to think about quality of life and not think that quality of life is everybody on the planet having a Mercedes and widescreen TVs and everything like that. And it's like, how do we actually do that in a way that is, um, you know, is sustainable? And it's this tension between good lives now because everybody wants quality of life now and every politician i mean no politician can go to the poll and say you know we're going to make life worse i mean well very few you can perhaps do it in a war scenario but and maybe thatcher managed to do a little bit of it and you know but it's like you can't really do that the tension between quality of life now and quality of life in the future and you know it's it's too easy too easy and with, particularly with our short-term cycles of government that you know to avoid issues and so the you know the governmental equivalent of of nimbyism not in my backyard is nimto which is not in my term of office and climate change gets pushed off into the future and so that's someone else's problem and i think it you know regrettably that's where we remain stuck and that's that's why i you know i've certainly been you know dedicating most of my adult life to thinking about neat ways of <clears throat> measuring progress because i think we get it wrong and i think if we got it right we wouldn't be so frightened of of having to give up of having to not have future gains in consumption. It's probably the way to think about it rather than giving up consumption. It's actually how do we stabilize it first and then how do we decarbonize it? So, you know, at the end of the day, all the, for most people, there are people who really, uh, there's, there's relative poverty and there's absolute poverty and uh, the relative poverty would get less bad if, if we didn't have, people who were super rich at the top of the income spectrum. The absolute poverty absolutely needs dealing with. And so, but for the rest of us, you know, money really only buys us a bigger car and a bigger house and, you know, a few holidays or something. But actually, you know, if we, if we had less and we had more time, then it probably would be a better life. But it, it is, people hang on to what they've got. They hang on to what they know. And that's quite difficult to move beyond that. Lastly, do you think there is... Um... Um, an evidence base building now that, uh, that that more localized, more resilient economies would be happier economies. I I don't know of, of very specific you know studies that show that absolutely. But if you take a reading of the literature of it, everything about well-being and happiness is proximal, is close to us. So the logic of everything being local is absolutely playing into the logic of happiness and well-being. So. I, you know, I can't believe that that is, is not a good outcome. Uh, it's not a good possibility. Um, and there definitely are big differences between communities in their levels of happiness and well-being, even independent of things like index of multiple deprivation and things like that. So there are things, you know, where thing, places where things are going great and things that are going less well that are independent of financial matters. So there's lots and lots of potential to do things independently of that, for sure.